Okay, so this morning Adam Wood is going to be sharing with us about a very important figure in Anglicanism, but I want to begin with our prayer. So let us pray. Blessed Lord, who caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant us so to hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and the comfort of your holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast for the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Okay. Um, oh, my goodness. It's loud. Um, all right. Did everybody get one of these handouts with, with pictures on it? And, and, and you'll see... Um, on the next couple of pages, there's, there's a whole bunch of quotations from Richard Hooker that, that, that we'll be looking at. Um, uh, I like to pray too. So uh, I actually put a prayer here too, but Mary preempted me. So, so, so we don't even need to pray this prayer. Um, but, but this prayer says, we praise your name for the gifts of grace manifested in your servant, Richard Hooker. And we pray that your church may never be destitute of such gifts. Um, Richard Hooker, uh, I sometimes hear described as four Anglicans occupying a role sort of like Luther does for Lutherans and Calvin does for Reformed folks and so forth. Um, so he's a pretty important figure in, in, in Anglican theology. Um, but however, uh, I had a bit of a quandary while I was preparing this session on Richard Hooker, because um, we're supposed to be focusing in this series on figural readings of scripture. And the thing of it is, is that Richard Hooker isn't really known for figural readings of scripture um, in the sense that Matt Milliner admirably laid out for us a few weeks ago. Um, Hooker was a huge super fan of Thomas Aquinas but I'm pretty sure that if you had asked Hooker whether he agreed with Aquinas, that there are allegorical and tropological and anagogical senses of the scriptures in addition to the literal sense, um, Hooker would probably have said no. Um, so look at text A on the handout. It's on the second page of your handout. Um, Mariah, could you read this one for us? Thanks, Mariah. So, so on the face of it there, it, it looks as though Hooker wants us to stick to literal readings of Scripture and not veer off into allegorizing um, what doesn't need to be allegorized. Um, I, I, th I think this is actually a little bit more complicated than, than the initial reading might suggest. So I, so I want us to come back to this passage uh, in a little bit here. Um, but uh, for now, here, here's my plan for this session. Um, instead of trying to force Hooker into um, saying stuff about figural readings of scripture that he doesn't really want to say, 
I'm going to start with the one thing he's really famous for, for saying about Scripture, and then try to build up some context uh, around it, and then loop back to the figural readings issue at the end. And I'm going to hope and trust that by the time we get there, you all can help me think of some things to say about it, okay? Um, so the, the one thing that most people know about Hooker, if they know anything at all, is that he's the one who gives us the metaphor of the three-legged stool of scripture, tradition, and reason jointly propping up something. Uh, Christian theology, I guess, or, or maybe just Anglican theology. It isn't usually super clear what they're propping up. Um, Anyway, Hooker doesn't ever actually offer this metaphor anywhere, as far as I know. Um, but he does write some things that kind of sort of sound like it. Uh, for example, if you look at text B, uh, which David will read for us. So there you go. It looks like you've got, you know, um, you've got what Scripture doth plainly deliver, and then you've got what anyone can necessarily conclude by force of reason, and then you've got uh, the voice of the church succeedeth. Um, so it sort of looks like you've got your three-legged stool in that passage. I want to come back to this important passage too, but before we do, I want to build up some context around what he's saying here. Um, and in order to do that, I want to start with a very particular historical incident that happened in 1586 at the London church where Hooker was head pastor. Um, and then I want to zoom out and talk about the work of Hooker's that all these passages are coming from, the laws of ecclesiastical polity, it's called, um, so that we can situate these quotes within it. Um, so that's the plan, uh, and here's the incident, starting out. Uh, the setting is the Temple Church in London, which you've got a, a picture of on, on the front of your hand out there. Um, it was founded in the 12th century by the Knights Templar, like those guys. Um, but by the 16th century, it was mainly a church for lawyers. Um, their professional associations, the inns of court, were located all around this church. Um, so the congregation was mostly lawyers. Um, the reader at the church, which was sort of like the teaching pastor, um, was this guy called Walter Travers. He was an ardent Puritan and a very gifted preacher by all accounts. He had been appointed reader of the church uh, because the master or rector of the church uh, was really old and kind of sick. And so Travers was appointed to kind of like help him out. Um, anyway, the master of the church died in 1585 and Travers was really hoping to take his place and become like the rector in place of him. Well, instead, 
uh, Queen Elizabeth, the Queen of England herself, um, had the bookish, moderate Richard Hooker installed as master of the church instead. And this pleased Travers none too well, um, uh, especially since Hooker was known for taking like a much softer stance on the salvific status of Roman Catholics and a much more supportive stance on various aspects of the Church of England establishment than Travers and his fellow Puritans wanted. Hooker was evidently not a gifted preacher. Um, the historian Thomas Fuller writes in his 1655 Church History of Britain that Hooker was, quote, of solid judgment and great reading. Yea, such was the depth of his learning that his pen was a better bucket than his tongue to draw it out. Um, <laughs> the, the practice at the temple church at the time was evidently for the master, the rector, to deliver the Sunday morning sermon, and then for the reader, like the teaching pastor, to deliver a lecture in the afternoon. Um, so in 1586, after Hooker is appointed, for a period of time, the, the temple church was treated to this spectacle. Hooker would read a moderate bookish sermon in the morning, and then Travers would get up and deliver a fiery line-by-line -line refutation of everything that Hooker had said in the afternoon. Um, uh, Sarah is going to read about this situation. This is again from Fuller's Church History. Thanks, Sarah. So, so there's the incident, and, and I'm sure this situation must have been disquieting of people's consciences, and probably dishonoring to God, too. Part of me still thinks it must have been a lot of fun to watch. Um, anyway, you might think this is all like a lot of drama for a bit of theological wrangling between Protestants, um, but the stakes were pretty high here. 
Um, when Queen Elizabeth took the throne in 1558 from her Catholic half-sister Mary, Bloody Mary, as history knows her, um, Elizabeth aimed at establishing England as a Protestant nation, but in a way that would avoid antagonizing those with Catholic sympathies. Um, this was her famous Elizabethan settlement. But there were legit worries about whether the Roman Catholic Church was going to be willing to let England go. And also, there were plenty of English Protestants who thought the Reformation in England hadn't gone nearly far enough. They thought we should get rid of priests and bishops and the funny clothes and hats that they wear and, and all of that stuff. Um, so fast forwarding a couple of years to 1588, right, two years after our, our incident here, while Hooker was still master of the Temple Church, although Travers had gotten kicked out by this point, um, Catholic Spain tried to invade England to restore it to Catholicism. This was the Spanish Armada, as, as we call it. Um, and then on the other side of the equation, the, the Puritan side, also in 1558, um, a whole series of Puritan tracts came out. These like pamphlets were put around by an anonymous Puritan calling himself Martin Marprelate. Um, look at text D on your handout for a taste of this. Tammy, could you read that for us? Tammy. So that's, that's pretty spicy. Um, although nowhere near as spicy as some of the polemical tracts written in Germany in the same century. Um, I just had to put a couple of these down in text E. So, so here's one from the Catholic side. The well-grounded, steadfast, grave, true, godly Christian, nobly inclined duplique against the elector of Saxony's defamatory Baseless, fickle, ungodly, fabricated, unchristian, drunken, God-detested treatise. And not to be outdone from the Protestant side, the true, steadfast, well-grounded, Christian, and sincere reply to the shameless book of infamy and lies by the godless, accursed, execrable, defamer, evil-working Barabbas, also whore-addicted Holofernes of Braunschweig, who calls himself Duke Heinrich the Younger. Awesome. <laughs> anyway, uh, Hooker obviously had his work cut out for him, trying to defend a sort of middle ground position that would include priests and bishops and their funny clothes and prayers by the book and fancy churches full of art named things like All Souls and whatnot, um, while still remaining Protestant. So, so how did he do it? Um, 
1591, he retired from the Temple Church uh, to a church in the countryside, and that's where he started writing this massive work that he's best known for, The Laws of Ecclesiastical Polity. Um, and as you might imagine in a work with that title, uh, his starting point is a detailed analysis of what we mean by law in the first place. Um, and even though, uh, like I said earlier, Hooker doesn't follow Aquinas in espousing a fourfold sense of scripture, he does follow Aquinas in holding that there is a fourfold sense of law. I'll say more about that in, in just a moment. Um, First, though, here's a quick sketch of where he goes from there. His analysis of law in book one of the laws provides him the groundwork for arguing in book two that the scriptures are not, in fact, the only source of laws. And then in book three, that matters of church polity their governance and their rights and their ceremonies and so forth are one of the things that scripture does not rule on in any definitive way. Having thus like cleared the decks and made room for reason and tradition alongside biblical literalism in these matters, um, Hooker can then go on in the rest of the work to defend the Anglican governance and rites and ceremonies of the Elizabethan settlement as reasonable and traditional and in no way contrary to scripture. Um, book five in particular, where our initial three-legged stool quote is from, defends things like these, naming our churches all souls or saint this or saint that. Um, having lots of art and stuff in our churches, having our ministers wear funny robes, um, making gestures like the sign of the cross, uh, singing psalms in unison, and, and so forth. Um, the historian Diarmid McCulloch uh, remarks this. He says, one feels that if the parliamentary legislation of 1559 had laid down that the English clergy were to preach standing on their heads, then Hooker would have found a theological reason for justifying it. Which sounds about right to me. Um, it, it's very, very detailed. Um, so that's where we're headed. Uh, but for now, let's retrace how Hooker gets there. The, the four senses of law that Hooker follows Aquinas in recognizing are the eternal law, the natural law, human law, and divine law. The eternal law, which he's talking about in text F, basically refers to the workings of God's providence insofar as they have their source in God himself. That's what the eternal law is. But insofar as these workings rule over the created order, Hooker calls God's providential ordering of things natural law. And in particular, he uses the term law of human nature or law of reason to refer to our peculiarly human way of 
participating in God's providential scheme. Um, he writes in text G that the natural law can be found out by everyone just by using our God-given powers of reason, and everyone the world over agrees with them. So if that's true, then necessarily the rules of the natural law are pretty general. They're things like don't murder and don't steal and, and so forth. Um, and if we were all perfect and sinless, Hooker suggests, we might all live together in harmony guided just by these natural laws. But we're not. So uh, Hooker thinks we need to pass a further set of laws specifying to us just exactly how to carry out the natural law as we live together um, to encourage us to follow the law, to punish us when we violate the law, and so on and so forth. And Aquinas and Hooker both call this regiment of laws in particular human societies human law. They agree that different societies can pass different sets of human laws. For example, they both say the natural law tells us theft ought to be punished, but how? And how much? And even what things count as theft might vary from community to community. Importantly, not just any old set of laws that we might pass in our, our society would count as human law for Hooker or Aquinas. Since human laws are just specific determinations of the natural law, and the natural law is just our human way of participating in God's eternal law, human laws have to be just if they're going to count as laws at all. Here's a notorious example of this from Aquinas. Um, Aquinas argues that it is lawful to steal in cases of necessity. Like, if you are in such dire need that your life is in danger unless you get certain resources, and our community has set things up such that some people in the community have the resources in superabundance, then it is permissible for you to help yourself to them, and doing so is not, strictly speaking, even stealing, since the property laws in that community are unjust, and hence, strictly speaking, they're not even laws at all. Um, Hooker says something pretty similar to this in text J. The point of I'm sorry, text I. Uh, the point of which is basically that whatever human laws you pass concerning property, like passing down to the next generation, need to be in accord with the natural law. Now, it so happens that Hooker doesn't think the natural law stipulates that property has to get passed down equally to all kids. He thinks it's perfectly just to pass it along to like firstborn sons. Um, and I guess I'm inclined to agree with him that maybe that could be a just arrangement in certain societies, even though it doesn't seem to me like the best way of doing things. Um, I think I'm also inclined to agree with Aquinas that whatever set of property laws 
you pass had better make provision for everybody's needs to be met, um, even though our society's set of human laws doesn't really seem to agree with this. Um, but I should, I should probably avoid politics. Um, anyway, the last sort of law that, that uh, Hooker and Aquinas talk about is what they call divine law, the laws set down in scripture. And you might think the main reason that we need laws set down in scripture is that we are sinners. And because of our sinfulness, we are unable to figure out the right way to order our lives unless God tells it to us. And I think Hooker would say that's true. But even if we weren't so darn sinful, Hooker would say we still have need of God giving us special directions that we couldn't figure out just by our natural reasoning abilities. Because our, our goal in life, our end in life, is not just natural, but rather supernatural. Call it blessedness, or salvation, or perfect union with God, or whatever you want. The point is, it is beyond what we can attain through our natural abilities. So, God in his grace gives us specific directions on how to attain it um, that we could never have figured out for ourselves. Um, look at what uh, Hooker says in text J, which I think Britta will read for us. Britta. So the scriptures give us everything we need to attain salvation, our, our supernatural end or goal. Um, and yet, Hooker points out, there's much that the scripture doesn't contain. This point is especially important for him as he moves into the second book of the laws in which he wants to challenge the claim of Puritans like Walter Trapper's that the scriptures contain all things that are necessary for guiding our lives. Their idea was that if something isn't set down explicitly in the scriptures, then we just shouldn't be doing it. And on the one hand, Hooker says, I get it. Like, we all want certainty. And human authorities are fallible, so it would be really nice to guide our lives with an infallible divine authority in all matters. He says, the truth is that the mind of man desireth evermore to know the truth according to the most infallible certainty which the nature of things can yield. And yet, he continues, here, here's what tends to happen. Um, Aaron, could you read text K for us?
So basically, I take it he's saying there, we, we shouldn't expect more certainty than the subject matter is really able to give us. So going back to the controversy with Travers, the incident that we were talking about earlier, um, here's where Hooker says the truth of the matter is. Um, Tommy, could you read text L for us? Thanks. Um, so there you have it. Two positions, both kind of opposite to one another, both Hooker thinks wrong in, in, in different directions. Um, I'm not too sure about what Hooker says here about the schools of Rome, but that, that's his view anyway. Um, now, like I said before, one of the things that Hooker uh, thinks isn't contained in Scripture is any exhaustive set of instructions about how to govern our churches or how to conduct our rites and ceremonies within our churches. This is gonna be one of those matters um, with regard to which different groups of Christians can and will pass different sets of human laws, which will go beyond anything in scripture or in natural law. So the question is, how do we know that our laws of ecclesiastical polity are not conflicting with scripture? or the natural law. Um, I don't think Hooker can give us any kind of like definitive guide here, but he certainly has thoughts, and one of them is the three-legged stool quote that we started out with. Um, we're like back full circle here. Um, Hooker is speaking here specifically about religious rites and ceremonies and how to tell which ones are good and which ones are bad um, and the first rule that he sets down is text M, which Karis is going to read for us. Thank you. And by the way, good job, everybody, with this like late 16th century English. Um, anyway, what Hooker says here sounds reasonable enough to me, but um, could you be any more specific, Mr. Hooker? Um, he continues in text N. Denise?
these. Um, so there's Hooker speaking up pretty strongly for tradition, I think. Um, and this is actually exactly where our quote from the start slots in. Uh, so let's read that quote again with a little bit more context around it. This is B star, like the augmented version. David. So that's really strongly in support of, of doing things according to tradition. Um, but, but I think it's equally important that Hooker doesn't just leave it there. Instead, he goes on to say in text O, there are ancient ordinances laws which on all sides are allowed to be good and just, yea, divine and apostolic constitutions, which the church, it may be, doth not always keep, nor always justly deserve blame in that respect. So Hooker's presumption in favor of tradition is certainly bounded. Things can and must change when it comes to ecclesiastical polity, rites, ceremonies. So how do we know when to change? Again, I don't think Hooker has any hard and fast rule here. Um, instead, he refers to the virtue of equity, which Aquinas saw as a component of the bigger virtue of justice that enables us to discern well where and how laws ought to be applied. There is no set of laws that could be so fine-grained as to eliminate the need for this virtue. It's a sort of virtue of, of discernment. Um, as a rule of thumb, though, Hooker takes the two are better than one idea pretty seriously when it comes to such matters. Um, texts P and Q are both Hooker criticizing folks who, who think that they alone with their Bibles, guided by the Spirit, are just as capable as the whole voice of the church together. He says at one point about the Puritans, quote, when they and their Bibles were alone together, what strange, fantastical opinions soever at any time entered into their heads, their use was to think the Spirit taught it to them. So that's like pretty harsh. Um, okay, time to wrap up with a few conclusions here. Um, the first one is about the three-legged stool metaphor or whatever it is. 
Um, I hope it's clear by now, having looked at text B in its context that David was reading for us, that it's a bit of a distortion of what Hooker actually says. The three-legged stool metaphor gives the impression that scripture, reason, and tradition are somehow playing separate but roughly equivalent roles. They're like each legs of the stool. And it's true that Hooker thinks we need all three of these, but for totally different reasons. The divine law uh, set down in scripture is necessary for our salvation and is given to us by God's grace because we couldn't attain our supernatural end without it. Um, but we need to use reason to interpret the scriptures. And furthermore, the scriptures don't rule on every matter, so we need human laws to direct us in matters like the rites and ceremonies of, of worship. Um, and as we're using reason in both of these ways, there, there's a presumption in favor of tradition as something that we shouldn't lightly set aside, but it's a bounded presumption. It's not something rigid and inflexible. That's the way I see Hooker kind of relating these three legs of the stool to, to one another. Um, second conclusion, looping back to the figural readings issue that we're supposed to be talking about here, law itself is, in a sense, figural for Hooker, insofar as God's wisdom and creative power themselves, the eternal law, as Hooker and Aquinas call it, are reflected not just in the divine law of the scriptures, but also in the just human laws that we pass for ourselves uh, in our society and in our churches, um, which are themselves just particular expressions of the natural laws of reason. So all four of those senses of law are kind of mirroring in different ways God's eternal providential ordering of things. Third, um, in a similar vein, it is not just incidental that our rites and ceremonies reflect God's wisdom and creativity. We need them to do so for our edification and upbuilding. Um, here's one last passage. This is R on the handout. Uh, Rich, do you have this one? Thanks, Rich. So I think even if Hooker isn't big on figural readings of, of scripture, it certainly seems as though he's in favor of figural readings of our liturgy. Um, as he said back in text M, which Karis read to us, that which 
inwardly each man should be, the church outwardly ought to testify. Signs must resemble the things they signify. Um, all right, lastly, going all the way back to text A, um, I'm not sure it shows as much opposition to figural readings as it might look. Um, the context here is a defense of Anglican rites and ceremonies of baptism. And the Puritans were evidently arguing that the ceremony of baptism by water wasn't really that important because John 3, 5, which says, very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and the spirit. Um, that passage is not, in fact, referring to the water of baptism, but rather water there is, is a mere metaphor is what they were wanting to say. To which Hooker says, as we've seen, no. The, the literal reading is the best one here. Um, but note that he is saying this in defense of uh, what, what is for us one of the two most important figures of all, passing through the waters of baptism into new life. Um, so, 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 so here's what we can leave off with. Um, we're, we're, we're about out of time here. So this is, this is an exercise that you'll have to think through uh, for yourself. Um, I put at the end of the handout uh, two, two passages of scripture. One of them is this one from John 3, which is Jesus talking to Nicodemus and saying, uh, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and the spirit. The other one, which the Puritans were also bringing up in this context, says, uh, this is John the Baptist saying, I baptize you with water for repentance, but the one who's coming after me is more powerful than I. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So, so here's the question, right? Reading those two passages together, how are we to understand water and the Spirit in the first passage? Is it referring to the water of baptism? Or is it a mere metaphor? Should we read this literally, figuratively? Y'all can think that over. I'm gonna have to just like leave it there so that I don't get in trouble with Brad. Um, but you can think about how that three-legged stool metaphor might inform our reading of these passages. Um, okay, do you wanna get up and, yeah, great, okay. I don't know. Here. Okay, I'll use this piece of silver. Okay, thank you. Um, okay. Okay. Um, thank you so much, Adam. That you just got a very important lesson in Anglican church history, because this whole thing between the Puritans and the higher high church people like Richard Hooker is still an issue I think many Anglicans are still dealing with today. So that was just fantastic, and I love the way you brought it out. However, I do want to say one thing. I think that Richard Hooker employed figural readings because in that great quote you gave us in B, where he says, I answer with Solomon because two are better than one. 
I'm pretty sure if you go back and look about that context of Solomon, he was not talking about the relationship between tradition and um, the scriptures. Right, Adam? I think that is a pretty figural. That would be what I would call a figural reading because he's taking something Solomon said, and it's great, but he's applying it completely out of context. If somebody wants to say I'm wrong, that's fine, but that's how I read that. So um, I really appreciate that you brought out just that, um, just taking one quote of Hooker's can't mean he doesn't believe in figural reading. I think you did a really good job of doing that and masterfully showed us um, really demonstrated Richard Hooker's thinking. Okay, so next week, we are gonna go completely in a different direction. Um, we are gonna be hearing about Charles Wesley's hymns and how Charles Wesley's hymns uh, reflect a figural reading of scripture. And Mark Clemens is going to be leading that, so it'll be really exciting. So thank you for coming today. Bye-bye. <laughs>